This is the CU 2.0 podcast with your host, Robert McGarvey. Big new ideas about credit unions. Big new ideas about credit unions. CU 2.0 podcast. Quick now, are you current on what's happening in the fast-changing payments universe? Can you ace a pop quiz on the hot topics in payments, such as contactless payments, and its role in a post-pandemic economy. You know it took off in the pandemic. What's happening now? Another topic, faster payments, like FedNow. Can you be part of it? What is it? Does it matter? You bet you it matters. As for can you be part of it, you're going to have to listen to this podcast. Emerging payments fraud concerns. It just never stops, does it now? It just never stops. QR codes, alternative payment rails. QR codes is a payment rail? Who knew? Well, it's happening. Credit card trends versus debit card usage. Things are changing just as they changed in the pandemic. Now maybe they're changing back. There's a lot to know about what's happening in payments, and it's a critical topic for any credit union executive. Can you ace that quiz? Well, let me ask this other question. Do you have a half hour? If you do, listen up to Jason Borer of the U.S. Payments Forum. He gives us a quick update of the, on the need-to-know headlines in today's payment notice. Need-to-know headlines in today's payments news. Listen up. We're going to do a fast romp through what's happening in the world of payments today. And people had been talking a lot about payments, particularly in the pandemic, but it seemed to get quieter Although that is not quieter from where you sit, right? There's still a lot of changes happening. Still a lot of changes. Yeah, it hasn't necessarily um, since the, the pandemic has kind of receded a little bit. But yeah, still a lot of activity going on. So what's, let's start with what's happening with contactless, where you'll recall in the pandemic, con- contactless was suddenly the new must-have. Got to do it. Got to do it. People had had it for years. They just hadn't used it. Whereas... Uh, now, I I don't read too much about contactless. So what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, the, the transition to contactless is really probably the predominant theme really over the last 24 months. Um, the, the U.S. Payments Forum recently had its, its summer me- member meeting uh, towards the end of July. Uh, and typically, we'll get together and we, we have representation from really every major constituency across the payments ecosystem. But all of our members from the payment networks on down continue to see you know significant double-digit growth when it comes to contactless payments, be it either with a, a physical contactless card or via the, their mobile phone. How do those numbers split, card versus phone? Um, it was still predominant card. Um, I mean, although that there's been strong, I mean, double digit growth even on on the mobile side as well. I mean, the the mobile discussion has been out there now, you know, for the better part of the last seven or eight years. But I would say that that over the last couple of years, um, you know, since since we were dealing with the issues of the pandemic, it's continued to accelerate over the last couple of years. And I think that the fact that at the end user level, I think people are becoming more familiar and comfortable with the technology on the card side is that that has also precipitated some growth even digitally as well. And what, what, what's, gonna, what's it going to take to move contactless to the next stage? 
Uh, availability. I mean, I, I think for the most part, they're, they're seeing it you know, within the merchant community that they're seeing the significant growth. Um, really, the last holdout within the, the payments ecosystem, which was the last to transition from MagStripe over to EMV or, or contactless technology, has been the petroleum segment. Um, you know, so pay, payment at the pump was really kind of the last bastion that was holding on to MagStripe technology. Uh, they're actively transitioning over. I know that north of 60% of, of the payment terminals within um, you know, a, a gas store application have been transitioned over to contactless. So now what we're talking about, um, you know, total availability of the contactless being north of 80% at all of the various uh, payment terminal locations. So I think on the reader's side is that the technology has finally reached the tipping point to a level where we'll continue to see adoption as we move forward to the point where it becomes the standard. And the technology has become better and better each year, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, speed of transaction, uh, real-time payments continues to be a focus, uh, continue to focus around, around fraud and the security of the transaction. Uh, that was another uh, kind of under underlying theme that that has been um, you know one of the key issues across our constituency over the last couple of years is all, all of the fraud. Now that the U.S. has transitioned over to EMV based technology, most of the fraud that there's kind of two primary forms that we continue to to battle, which is card not present fraud. Um, you know, so typically online type transactions is an area that we'll continue to focus as well as. Uh, what they call account takeover, right? So essentially, uh, a fraudster acting like acting like it's you and making transactions is another area that we can continue to combat in the background. And so, what progress has been being made in fighting those two things? Uh, quite quite a bit. I mean, I, there's a number of tools uh, that the industry has been embracing to help uh, combat the, the, those two issues, right? So whether it be um, tokenization, enhanced forms of authentication, dual authentication, um, deploying EMV 3D secure type technologies, uh, as well as other kind of data protection and cybersecurity measures. They're really attacking it from multiple angles at this stage. Are a lot of banks particularly suspicious of card not present transactions? Uh, I, I would say there's probably a heightened sensitivity to those types of transactions. Yes, is that knowing that the pendulum has swung now from you know fraud in in-person type transactions, which has almost gotten to the point where where it's single-digit non-existent, is that the focus really is at every level. Ba- banks and otherwise has transitioned over to card not present fraud. I mean, I, I asked because it was a, a week ago when I did a card not present transaction and got a call almost immediately from Bank of Montreal, which was the card issuer, their fraud department, <laughs> saying, hey, did you just do this? And I said, yeah, I did this. And they said, fine. OK, no problem. Just wanted to check. So, Yeah, and I, I think most of us probably experiencing those calls on a semi-regular basis at this stage. But yeah, I, th- I think the algorithms associated with trying to identify the type of of transaction that it is, and if, if there's something that falls outside of um, your your normal purchase pattern, then then I think we're, we also probably anticipate those phone calls as we move forward too. Yeah, they had never seen me transact with this merchant before, and the transaction was for six hundred and some odd dollars, which 
probably triggered. Uh, it was a threshold they had that that was crossed. I imagine. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now, count takeover. You think there's progress in that regard too? Yeah, I mean that that that's one that oftentimes can be a little bit tricky um, trying to to identify. Um, but when I when I talk about some of these other tools, is is a lot of those tools are also aimed at trying to. Uh, get their hands around account takeover fraud, right? So whether it's dual authentication, multi forms of authentication, uh, biometric, you know, being incorporated, there's a variety of things that they're doing. Um, they're not not trying to impede the convenience of the transaction, but also provide a layer of security there to combat that that type of fraud as well. The last time I looked into account takeover, which was a few years ago. A complication, a wrinkle in the whole thing was a lot of account takeover was by a, a relative rather than a complete stranger. And the relative obviously knows a lot of things about the account he or she is trying to take over. Yeah, oftentimes, I mean, I think in any of those situations, whether whether it be a family member or otherwise, typically they, they, they do know something about that individual account. Uh, or, or the person that owns that account, right? So that that's why it can be a little bit tricky trying to identify whether it's a, a legitimate transaction or not. Um, and that's where banks are, are really starting to incorporate, like I said, multi forms of authentication, where you know they're sending you a pin to your phone um, to validate that it, it's a valid transaction, and or biometrics through authentication into your phone. There's a variety of different uh, of methods that they're employing to make sure. Uh, that they can decipher when it is a valid versus a non-valid transaction. The companies that participate in these forms, is it a sense among many of them, most of them, some of them, none of them, that it's becoming the the responsibility of the bank or the card issuer to essentially protect the, the customer, that the customer can't be counted on to protect him or herself? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as we've gone through this transition, um, you know, to EMV over over the last really last ten years or so, there's clear lines of demarcation relative to who owns fraudulent transactions moving forward. Uh, but but I think at this stage, you're right. Is at the issuer level, they're doing everything that they can to look out for the best interests of the individual cardholder. Um, you know, the, the typical cardholder is not familiar uh, with, with various forms of fraud. Is is they oftentimes don't find out until after the fact. So I think those individuals that are within the ecosystem um, that do this on a daily basis, um, it, it's in their interest, both for their customers but also for their individual um, companies, to to make sure that they try and combat it as much as they can. Right. So you're seeing ownership. Up, up and down the ladder, but I think those that are closest to the end user oftentimes are the ones that are most sensitive to it um, and are actively trying to combat some of these issues. I think some of the tools that they have now are pretty sophisticated relative to, like I said, kind of recognizing what your buying patterns are, where the purchases are being made. Um, you know, they're deploying new techniques, be it either artificial intelligence, post-quantum computing to help try and um, you know, through through various algorithms, assess what they believe to be a valid transaction versus a non-valid transaction, um, and it's the constant constant tug of war, right? Is, is a lot of the, the the fraudsters are also on the the edge of technology, deploying new capabilities to try and perpetrate perpetrate 
um, you know, this criminal activity. So it, it, I think it's going to be a, a constant battle for the foreseeable future, just trying to stay one step ahead. Well, I think that's one of the realities is that the professional fraudsters are pretty much as good as the professional caretakers inside financial institutions. These are people working at it for a living and in many cases making really pretty good money. Yep, exactly. You know, so I, it, it'll be a battle definitely for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, hopefully that the, the white hats win. Um, I, I know that they're always looking at new technologies and open to to new standards. And I think that that's one of the things when we look at, you know, to come back to our organization structures, uh, we have a very strong presence in the payment space with our U.S. payments form. But we have sister organizations within the Secure Technology Alliance that can leverage some best practices that may be in adjacent uh, arenas, right? So be, be it either cybersecurity or access control or what have you, is we can begin to leverage some of those technology building blocks back into payments where it makes sense. And was there any discussion or has has there been any discussion of buy now, pay later, or is that out of your purview? Oh yeah, no, no, no. Square, squarely in our in our purview. We've we've been. Uh, I mean, I've been part of the organization now for uh, it'll be coming up on two years here shortly. But uh, buy now, pay later has been at the forefront. You know, in the two years that I've been here, continue to have sessions in pretty much every single member meeting that we have. Uh, continue to see a lot of growth in buy now, pay later um, at the merchant level. Uh, you, you've seen, you know, a number of companies kind of mushroom up around the management of, of that transaction and the follow-on transactions uh, as people make their, their regular, you know, monthly or quarterly installments it is it's an area, especially with, with inflation and some of the things that we're dealing with here in the U S is it's only going to probably continue to grow as we move forward. So it, it's definitely a topic that's very relevant to all of our constituents. Well, a problem with it, although I think steps are being taken to, to attempt to solve it is that, Six months ago, I might be applying with you for a buy now, pay later thing. And you look and say, well, credit looks pretty good. What you don't know is that in the last two days, I opened 34 buy now, pay later accounts. And you couldn't have known it really a few months ago. It's not that you were negligent. It's that the data wasn't available to you. And if I I were a a financial institution, this would scare the bejesus out of me, to be honest. Yeah, and, I, and you know, there's discussions behind the scenes relative to okay, you, do you begin to include, um, you know, the, the number of accounts where you have a buy now pay later account? Does that does that now become part of your your credit history? Um, how, how do you begin to rope that into the overall fiscal pers- uh, picture for that individual? Uh, all of that, because I think especially within the younger generation, the you know, millennial type generation, is you're seeing them really embrace that probably more so than you are, you know, potentially the, the older parts of, of, of society. Um, so I, I think it's, it's in our best interest to make sure that we set some guardrails around what, what this technology really is to be used for and, and to try and um, you know, pre- prevent it from being abused. What's happening in QR codes? I actually hadn't thought about them in quite a while. Yeah, I mean, QR codes is another area. I mean, I, I would put that right up there, at least in terms of relevance of the topic, is, is QR codes has been another one with the onset of the pandemic. Um, you know, a lot of people didn't know what a QR code was uh, pre, pre-COVID, but uh, I think it's become 
uh, effective life. It means mainstream and everything that we do now. It's difficult to go into to most restaurants and not have the ability to scan a QR code uh, for, for menus, but it's it's been taken to another level um, to provide authentication in a number of applications, and that, that includes payments, right? So I, I think, again, this is another technology that, especially within the younger generation, they're very familiar with it. It's a natural extension uh, of what they do in daily lives. What what's the advantage of using a QR code for pa- payment as opposed to say uh, contactless? Yeah, I mean, typically, again, I mean, it's it's mobile driven, um, right? So you're not necessarily having to carry your wallet around in order to make the transaction. Uh, the speed of the transaction um, is is oftentimes very quick. So I think the overall user experience. Uh, is good from from those two angles. Um, like I said, it's something that they're familiar with. They're not having to go out and necessarily pull up an individual app. It is you know it's it's tied together digitally in the background. So I, I think when when you look at all the aspects related to the the convenience of the transaction, it's 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 just something that that people enjoy because it's easy. So credit card trends now spending on credit cards is way up. Is that Am, am I right about that? No, you, you are right. Um, I, I think as we entered the pandemic, there, there was a transition uh, back to debit cards. Uh, I, I think with the uncertainty within the job market, people wanted to make sure that they weren't getting too far into credit card debt. Now that things have started to subside a little bit, typically, you know, you, you were in that that 65, 35 range. Um, where people were using, you know, credit to, to debit, it, it, it probably went back closer to 55, 45 or 50, 50 during the pandemic. We're, we're, we're kind of migrating back to that 65, 35, but that, that's kind of the traditional thre- threshold uh, in terms of which card an individual reaches for. And I would guess there's probably a little less anxiety about possible jumps in uh, lack of payment on credit cards because I think fears of recession are receding a bit. Yeah. I mean, obviously the economy still feels like it's a little bit in a, in a tenuous spot right now. Um, you know, it's trying to iron out some of the, those issues, like I said, relative to inflation and, and how that's affecting everybody. But I, I think overall is that the majority of the workspace is, is back to work in some shape or form. At this stage, it might not necessarily be the normal five days a week uh, that that people were were used to pre-pandemic, but at, at a minimum, it's, it's it's probably at a hybrid level where people are coming in, you know, three days, maybe two days from the house, but they feel secure in their job and the ability of their business to continue forward, um, you know, in a healthy fashion. Now, if a credit union or bank executive said to you, "Hey, man, this is too much," what one thing? Should I really be paying attention to out of this bucket? What would you tell them? Uh, yeah, well, as I think, um, you know, we talked about fraud. Obviously, that that's top of mind for them. Um, you know, contactless for the most part. A lot of the heavy lifting has been done. We'll probably continue to see transition um, o- over to contactless uh, w- without a whole lot of promotion at this stage. I think for them is the, the the two things that they probably need to be cognizant of is is speed of transaction. Everybody wants faster real time payments. Um, you know, we had a session in our last meeting to a service that the Federal Reserve Bank is going to be offering up uh, called FedNow, 
which speed, speeds up the overall payment process. So I, I think speed of, of transaction uh, of the payment process is, is going to be key. But the, the other thing that always is there for me is, is convenience, right? So whether it be um, you know, peer-to-peer type transactions, right, where you're transferring money from one individual to another, whether it be apps like Zelle or Venmo or PayPal or what, what have you, I think that's another area that consumers uh, really are demanding a little bit more functionality. You know, so I think that those are probably the key issues. The, the, the other thing I was a bank owner that, that I would be cognizant of too, um, and if you're supporting any any merchants, this would be relevant, but uh, the, the technology that, that people call uh, tap to phone type technology, right? So you're starting to see an increase um, in transactions where you're presenting either your card or your digital phone to another phone to complete the transaction. It might not necessarily always be a a rigid um, payment terminal that, that we're familiar with in the past, right? So I think providing that flexibility um, to the merchant community is another area that's kind of intriguing. Now, does Fed now open up a possibility of a have, have not situation where when it rolls out, it's going to be available to a pretty small subset of financial services players, right? Yes, I think my understanding is they are going to have a phased rollout. Um, but I believe that that's really just going to be uh, to, to vet the technology and make sure that there wasn't anything that was uh, unseen as they did some of their pilots. But I think that the scaling of it, um, really, I'm not aware of it being limited to haves and have-nots. So I, I would think as they get through those initial um, you know, kind of beta stages, I guess is what I would call it, is, is it should scale pretty rapidly across the rest of the ecosystem here in the U.S. Before we go, think hard about how you can help support this podcast so we can do more interviews with more thoughtful leaders in the credit union world. What we're trying to figure out here in these podcasts is what's next for credit unions. What can they do to really, really, really make a difference in the financial scene? Can't all be mega banks, can it? It's my hope it won't all be mega banks. It'll always be a place for credit unions. That's what we're discussing here. So figure out how you can help. Get in touch with me. This is RJ McGarvey at gmail.com. Robert McGarvey again. That's RJ McGarvey at gmail.com. Get in touch. We'll figure out a way that you can help. We need your support. We want your support. We thank you for your support. The CU 2.0 podcast.